0: A.M. American Majority. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org. This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to Episode 12, The Life of James Otis. He was called by John Adams a flame of fire, who said, I have never known a man whose love of country was more ardent or sincere, never one who suffered so much, never one whose service for any 10 years of his life were so important and essential to the cause of his country as those of Mr. Otis from 1760 to 1770. And yet today, many have forgotten James Otis, whose early advocacy and courage on behalf of American independence gave men like Adams the shoulders upon which to stand in the 1770s. James Otis Jr. was born on February 5, 1725, in West Barnstable, Massachusetts, the oldest of 13 children. He would attend Harvard College, graduating at the age of 18 in 1743, but continuing his education in law under Jeremiah Gridley, a member of the General Court of Massachusetts. After he was admitted to the bar, Otis launched his new law practice in Plymouth, but relocated to Boston in 1750, where he quickly rose to the top of the legal profession in the city. In 1755, Otis married Ruth Cunningham, the daughter of a well-to-do Boston merchant who was an heiress to a 10,000-pound fortune. Despite their differences in politics, Otis would refer to Ruth as a high Tory, he claimed she was too good for him. They would have three children together, with the oldest daughter marrying a British officer and moving to England, while the other two, it is presumed, were more in line with their father's views on American independence. In 1760, Otis received a prestigious appointment as Advocate General of the Admiralty Court. But shortly after receiving the appointment, he resigned in protest when he was expected to argue in favor of the writs of assistance, as I mentioned in the previous podcast. Not to go into too much detail here, but in 1650, Great Britain had established the Navigation Acts, which confined the trade of the colony's exports to England. So all the American exports were to go to England— where the colonial merchants were, of course, not guaranteed the best prices. Then, in 1733, Parliament moved to enforce the Molasses Act, heavily taxing all non-British, and also less expensive, imported sugars, in order to promote sugar harvested from the British West Indies. In order to avoid these duties and the inflated prices, colonial colonial merchants had begun smuggling non-West Indian sugar into the colonies. The British authorities, of course, knew that smuggling to avoid the taxes was taking place and had begun cracking down on the colonists in an attempt to collect on the tax revenue being lost by the smuggling. I could go into a long diatribe on this sort of behavior being exactly the result of government manipulating markets, but I would digress completely away from the subject at hand. But note the chain of events in which Great Britain's mercantilism did, in fact, create a great deal of strife with the American colonies and its merchants. But back to the topic of smuggling. Part of the crackdown was the writs of assistance, which were very vague search warrants, allowing customs inspectors absolute power to investigate homes and ships, warehouses, or any area they saw fit, with no advance notice, no probable cause, and no reason given. With these writs, the British believed they could eliminate smuggling and impose the tax on the colonists. Thomas Hutchinson, a native of Boston and a loyalist, was made Chief Justice of Massachusetts and tasked with bringing the colony under better control. Furious at the injustice of the writs and perhaps angered by the fact that his father had been passed over by Hutchinson for the post of Chief Justice, Otis promptly turned around after resigning from the Admiralty Court and represented pro bono 63 colonial merchants who were challenging the legality of the writs before the Superior Court. The predecessor to the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. A large fee was offered to him by the merchants, but Otis refused it. In such a cause, he said, "I despise all fees." Not only was Otis openly opposing the royal governor, Sir Francis Bernard, who was the current royal governor of Massachusetts at the time, and Hutchinson, but in a bit of irony, the very man who taught him law was his opponent that day, the attorney for the crown. Jeremiah Gridley. In February of 1761, Otis argued for five hours before the court as a packed house at the old state house looked on. Otis argued that day that a man's house is his castle, and whilst he is quiet, he is well guarded as a prince in his castle. This writ, if it should be declared legal, would totally annihilate this privilege. Custom House officers may enter our houses when they please. We are commanded to permit their entry. Their menial servants may enter, may break locks and bars and everything in their way. And whether they break through malice or revenge, no man, no court may inquire. Bare suspicion without oath is sufficient. Every man prompted by revenge, ill humor, or wantonness to inspect the inside of his neighbor's house may get a writ of assistance. Others will ask it from self-defense. One arbitrary exertion will provoke another until society be involved in a tumult and in blood. John Adams, a young lawyer in Boston at the time, commented that Otis was a flame of fire, with a promptitude of classical allusions, a depth of research, a rapid summary of historical events and dates, and a profusion of legal authorities. And Adams later claimed that the child independence was then and there born, For every man of an immense, crowded audience appeared to me to go away as I did, ready to take up arms against writs of assistance. However, Otis lost his case that day, and the writs were upheld, but he did win for himself a name as an avid and brilliant American patriot. It is interesting to note, however, that Otis did not identify himself as a revolutionary. His peers, too, generally viewed him as more cautious than the incendiary Samuel Adams. Otis at times counseled against the mob violence of the radicals and argued against Adams' proposal for a convention of the colonies resembling that of the British Glorious Revolution of 1688. Yet on other occasions, Otis exceeded Sam Adams in rousing passions and exhorting people to action. According to some accounts, at a town meeting on September 12, 1768, Otis even called for his compatriots to get arms telling him that it was time for them to arm themselves in preparation for violence with the crown. Months after arguing against the Ritz, Otis was elected to the state legislature, and in 1766, speaker of that same body, only to have his new position vetoed by Sir Francis Bernard, the royal governor, who still remembered very well Otis's defiance over the Writs and his attendance at the Stamp Act Congress in 1765. During the early and mid-1760s, Otis would write three well-known pamphlets, The Rights of the British Colonies Asserted and Proved, which set down another important philosophy underpinning the revolutionary debate. It asserted that rights are not derived from human institutions, but from nature and from God. Thus, government does not exist to please monarchs, but to promote the good of the entire society. His other pamphlet, Considerations on Behalf of the Colonists, expanded on Otis's arguments from The Rights of the British Colonies Asserted and Proved he furthered the notion in that pamphlet of natural rights by linking it to the theory of equal representation. Now, in 1767, working with Samuel Adams, Otis protested once again against British actions writing and circulating a letter through the other 12 colonies, calling for them to defy all of the Townsend duties, which were really five different acts. The Revenue Act of 1767, the Indemnity Act, the Commissioners of Customs Act, the Vice-Admiralty Court Act, and the New York Restraining Act. I won't go into much detail on the five acts except to say that they were meant to achieve two purposes. Get the royal governors and the colonies more money to implement tighter British rule and to punish New York for defying the Quartering Act of 1765. By the late 1760s, Otis was one of the acknowledged leaders of American independence, it was said that abroad, no American was so frequently quoted, denounced, or applauded in Parliament and the English press before 6- 1769 as the recognized head and chief of the rebellious spirit of the New England colonists, as was Otis. But despite such influence during his life, one of the reasons that many today are not as familiar with Otis is because in the mid-1760s, Otis's behavior started to become erratic. It appears he was either a manic depressive or suffered from schizophrenia. Then in 1769, after a pointed attack on, on British custom commissioners in the Boston Gazette, one of those commissioners, John Robinson, confronted Otis in a coffee house. They came to blows, and Robinson gave Otis a deep sword wound that nearly cracked Otis's skull, an injury that some believe further aggravated already failing mental health. Some historians have tried to point to Robinson's attack on Otis and the resulting head injury as the cause of Otis's erratic behavior. But John Adams has several examples in his diary of Otis's mental illness well before 1769. By the end of the decade, Otis's public life largely came to an end. He had moments of sanity and was able to practice law at intermittent periods, and even slipped off to serve at the Battle of Bunker Hill in June of 1775. But by 1770, Otis was never quite himself again. He quietly faded from public life, and then on May 23rd of 1783, at the age of 58, Otis passed away. His death was actually a sudden and unusual one. As he stood in the doorway of a friend's house, he was struck by lightning and killed instantly. He is reported to have said to his sister, Mercy, Otis Warren, my dear sister, I hope when God Almighty in His righteous providence shall take me out of time into eternity, that it will be by a flash of lightning. Otis's wish was granted. There's no telling what Otis might have become had he not been beset by mental illness, but there's no denying his influence upon John Adams and others of the founding generation, who were able to take the ideas Otis proclaimed of natural rights and rule of law and equal representation and turn them into a reality. In some ways, men like Adams and Jefferson stood upon the shoulders of Otis, and for that reason, Otis's life is one worth remembering. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org and written by Ned Ryan and Eric Josephson and recorded by Ned Ryan. If you enjoy this podcast on American history, be sure to check out the history of the Constitutional Convention by Ned Ryan at AmericanMajority.org or on iTunes.